All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, therefore we are standing in the confessional corner. This week is week two on Apology, Article 24, On the Mass. This week we're going to cover paragraph 16 to 38 as to the question, what is a sacrifice? The Roman theologians keep throwing it around that the Mass is a sacrifice, like it's part of the old Levitical system that's been moved into the New Testament era. But if Jesus took care of all of the Levitical sacrifices, why do we still have the sacrifice? That is the question we'll cover over the next couple of weeks as this is the major thrust of Article 24 as to the definition of sacrifice and the definition of sacrament. Let's jump right into it with paragraph 16 to 18. In the Phaedrus of Plato, Socrates says that he is especially fond of distinctions, because without these, nothing in speech can either be explained or understood. If he discovers anyone skillful in making dis distinctions, he says that he pays attention and follows his footsteps as those of a god. He instructs the one to separate the parts of speech in their very joints. So like an inept cook, he breaks some part of speech to pieces. But the adversaries truly hate these basic rules, and according to Plato, are truly poor butchers, for they break the parts of sacrifice. This can be understood when they have listed the kinds of sacrifice. Theologians are rightly familiar with distinguishing between a sacrament and a sacrifice. Therefore, let them be subdivided into either a ceremony or a sacred work. A sacrament is a ceremony or work in which God presents to us what the promise of the ceremony offers. Baptism is not a work that we offer to God. It is a work in which God baptizes us. In other words, a minister baptizes us on God's behalf. God here offers and presents the forgiveness of sins and so forth according to the promise, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. A sacrifice, on the contrary, is a ceremony or work that we give to God in order to provide him honor. This is the basic distinction, and this is the distinction that needs to be made in regards to the Mass. Is, is it a sacrament where God is working for us, or is it a sacrifice where we are working to give God glory, honor, and hopefully enough to give us atonement for our sins? That is the great distinction between sacrament and sacrifice. But the Roman opponents sit there and continue to break it down to even worse portions because we have such minutia in the details that, well, if we don't have this particular phrase in there, well, then it's not legitimate. It's not valid. Whereas with the Lutheran reformers, they are, as long as we have the major basic parts of the liturgy for the sacrament, that is what is necessary. The words of institution, the Lord's Supper, the Agnus Dei and the Sanctus, as well as, if we want, the post-communion nunc dimittis, which I don't see why anybody would want to take that out. I mean, yes, Divine Service 1 replaces it with thank the Lord as the primary one, but the nunc dimittis, the thanksgiving for having received the sacrament, that is a very vital part of it because it, again, verifies that it is God working 
for us, giving us the gifts. Melanchthon continues by going into the two kinds of sacrifice in paragraphs 19 through 21. Furthermore, there are two kinds of sacrifice and no more. One is the atoning sacrifice, that is, a work that makes satisfaction for guilt and punishment. It reconciles God or reconciles his wrath and merits the forgiveness of sins for others. The other kind is the Eucharistic sacrifice, which does not merit the forgiveness of sins or reconciliation. It is practiced by those who have been reconciled so that we may give thanks or return gratitude for the forgiveness of sins that has been received or for other benefits received. In this controversy, as well as in many other discussions, we should especially have these two kinds of sacrifice in view and present them. Special care must be taken lest they should be confused. If the limits of this book would permit it, we would add the reasons for this distinction. It has many references in the Epistle to the Hebrews and elsewhere. All Levitical sacrifices can be referred to either of these two distinctions as if they were their own homes. In the law, certain sacrifices were named atoning because of their meaning or by comparison. They were not called sacrifice because they merited the forgiveness of sins before God, but because they merited the forgiveness of sins according to the righteousness of the law, so that those for whom they were made might, be, might not be excluded from that commonwealth from the people of Israel. Therefore, for a trespass, the sacrifices were called sin offerings and burnt offerings. But the Eucharistic sacrifices were the grain offering, the drink offering, the thank offering, first fruits, tithes, and so forth in Leviticus 1-7. through So there are two kinds of sacrifice. And notice the wording that he uses here. One is the atoning sacrifice, singular, and we'll get into that in just a minute as well. The other kind is the Eucharistic sacrifice. Again, singular, because it all boils down to one thing. The sacrifice either makes atonement for your sins or it offers thanks for that forgiveness of sins or the other benefits that you have received from God. So you have the atoning sacrifice, as we'll talk about in a moment, from Melanchthon is the once-for-all death of Jesus on the cross. The Eucharistic sacrifice is roughly everything else we do that we could consider a sacrifice. Again, going back to the Nunc Dimittis being sung after the reception of Holy Communion, or even the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world before. Still a thanksgiving because we hold on to the promise of God working through us and giving us the gifts of forgiveness of sins in the body and blood of his Son. Melanchthon goes on in paragraphs 22 through 24. In fact, there has been only one atoning sacrifice in the world, namely Christ's death. As the epistle to the Hebrews teaches, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Chapter 10, verse 4. A little later, of the will of Christ, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body. Again, chapter 10, verse 10 this time. Isaiah interprets the law so that we may know Christ's death is truly a satisfaction for our sins or remedy and that the ceremonies of the law are not. He says, when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, and so on. Isaiah 53, verse 10. The word here means a victim for transgression. In the law, this illustrated that a certain victim was to come to make satisfaction for our sins and reconcile God. This was so that people might know that God wishes to be reconciled to us, not because of our own righteousness, but because of another's merits, Christ. 
Paul interprets the same word as sin. For sin, he condemned sin, Romans 8.3. That is, he punished sin for sin, that is, by a victim for sin. The meaning of the word is more easily understood from pagan customs. These were adopted from their misunderstanding of statements by the fathers. The Latins called a victim a piaculum, which was offered to reconcile God's anger and great calamities, where he seemed to be especially enraged. Sometimes they sacrificed human victims, perhaps because they heard that a human victim would reconcile God for the entire human race. The Greeks sometimes called them cleansing and sometimes wiping away. Isaiah and Paul, therefore, mean that Christ became a victim, that is, a remedy, that by his merits and not our own, God might be reconciled. Let this remain the case. Christ's death alone is truly an atoning sacrifice, for the Levitical atoning sacrifices were so-called only to illustrate a future remedy. Because of a certain resemblance, they were satisfactions delivering the righteousness of the law and preventing those persons who sinned from being excluded from the commonwealth. But after the revelation of the gospel, those sacrifices had to end. Since they had to end in the revelation of the gospel, they were not true atoning sacrifices, for the gospel was promised specifically to present an atoning sacrifice. Okay, again, what is the atoning sacrifice? It is the death of Jesus on the cross. That is the once-for-all and only atoning sacrifice. Every other sacrifice that came up and is called atoning in the Levitical law points to that sacrifice. It shows that a, it is a shadow of what is to come, that glimpse into God's love and mercy and grace that he gives, that yeah, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the Son of God would be the once-for-all atoning sacrifice. But to keep people from not being glued to what is going to happen, maybe in the far future, because nobody knew exactly when it was going to happen, he gave daily remembrances through the burnt offerings and through the sin offerings that this was coming and that it was credited to them through those sacrifices that served as a shadow. He goes into Isaiah 53 talking about the suffering servant offering his soul for the salvation of humanity. And so he says, let this be the case, that only Jesus' death is the only sac atoning sacrifice for sins. Everything else had to end because it was all based in the law. It all gave the righteousness of the law, not the promise of the gospel. Because the gospel promised one atoning sacrifice for everything and not just a daily atoning for what you've done previously. Because that gets down to being a very burdensome thing if that is your hope. In paragraphs 25 and 26, Melanchthon goes into the Eucharistic or Thanksgiving sacrifices. Now, the rest are Eucharistic sacrifices, which are called sacrifices of praise. In Leviticus 3, chapter 7, verses 11 through 18, and Psalm 56, 12. These are the preaching of the gospel, faith, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, the troubles of saints. Yes, all good works of saints. These sacrifices are not satisfactions for those making them, nor can they be applied to others to merit the forgiveness of sins or reconciliation by the outward act. They are made by those who have been reconciled. 
These are the sacrifices of the New Testament, as Peter preaches, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, 1 Peter 2.5. Spiritual sacrifices are contrasted not only with those of cattle, but even with human works offered by the outward act, because spiritual refers to movements of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul teaches the same thing. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. Spiritual worship means, however, a service in which God is known and is grasped by the mind. This happens in the movements of fear and trust toward God. Therefore, it contrasts not only with the Levitical service in which cattle are slain, but also with the service in which a work is imagined to be offered by the outward act. The epistle to the Hebrews teaches the same thing. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Chapter 13, verse 15. He adds the interpretation, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. He asks us to offer praises, that is, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, and the like. These benefit not by the outward act, but because of faith. This is taught by the clause, through him, then let us continually offer, that is, by faith in Christ. The Eucharistic sacrifices, the thanksgiving sacrifices, the sacrifices of praise, all of these things are the same thing. And it covers the wide range of all of the Christian life. The preaching of the gospel, faith, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, the troubles of the saints. Yes, all good works of the saints. These are all Eucharistic sacrifices made by those who have been reconciled already. There is no need for them to try to gain reconciliation because it is already theirs. And he points out that spiritual sacrifices, these Eucharistic sacrifices, are not only contrasted to those of bulls and goats, but even with human works that are offered by the outward act. Because spiritual sacrifices means that the Holy Spirit is moving in us, making us as Paul writes to the Romans, a living sacrifice for Christ. And that living sacrifice is nothing but praise and thanksgiving for the grace, love, peace, and mercy that God has bestowed on us through his Son. Paragraphs 27 through 29 continue on with the idea that all of Christian worship in the New Testament is the Eucharistic sacrifices being given over and over again because we cannot ever be done giving thanks to God for all that he has done for us. In short, the worship of the New Testament is spiritual. It is the righteousness of faith in the heart and the fruit of faith. New Testament worship set aside Levitical services. Christ says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23-24 This passage clearly condemns opinions about sacrifices that, as the adversaries imagine, benefit by the outward act. In contrast, it teaches that people should worship in spirit, that is, with the inclinations of the heart and by faith. So even in the Old Testament, the prophets condemn the opinion of the people about the outward act and teach the righteousness and sacrifices of the spirit. I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I give you, obey my voice and I will be your God, and so on, Jeremiah 7, 22-23. How do we suppose that the Jews received this charge, which seems to conflict openly with Moses? God clearly gave the fathers commands about burnt offerings and victims, but Jeremiah condemns the opinion about sacrifices that God had not delivered, namely that these services please him by the outward act. 
Concerning faith, he adds that God had commanded this, Hear me, that is, believe me that I am your God, and that I wish to be known when I care for you and help you. I do not need your sacrificial victims. Believe that what believe that I want to be God, the justifier and savior, not because of works, but because of my word and promise. Truly seek and expect help from me from the heart. Psalm 50, verses 13 through 15, which rejects sacrificial victims and requires prayer, also condemns the opinion about the outward act. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. The psalmist testifies that this is true service and true honor if we call upon him from the heart. Likewise, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Psalm 40, verse 6. That is, you have offered me your word that I may hear it, and you do require that I believe your word and your promises. You truly desire to care for me and to help, and so on. Likewise, you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Psalm 4, 5. He asks us to hope and says that this is a righteous sacrifice, meaning that other sacrifices are not true and righteous sacrifices. And I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Psalm 116, 17. All of these verses from the Psalms, many of which we've already talked about on the Digging Deeper sections, talk about the sacrifice, the actual ritual, the Mechanics of it is not the important thing. It is faith in the Word. Just as Luther says in his catechism about the Lord's Supper, it is not fasting and outward preparation that makes you worthy to be a recipient of the Lord's Supper. It is faith in the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Faith makes you worthy. Faith makes it a true sacrifice. And faith causes you to give thanks. That is what the sacrifice is all about. Continue on in paragraph 30. Scripture is full of such references that teach that sacrifices by the outward act do not reconcile God. Since Levitical services have been repealed, the New Testament teaches that new and pure sacrifices will be made. Faith, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, the preaching of the gospel, troubles on account of the gospels, and the like. Malachi speaks about these sacrifices. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Chapter 1, verse 11. The adversaries perversely apply this passage to the Mass and quote the authority of the fathers. A reply, however, is easy. Even if this passage spoke most particularly about the Mass, it would not make sense that the Mass justifies by the outward act, or that, when applied to others, it merits the forgiveness of sins. The prophet says nothing about these things that the monks and philosophers rudely make up. Besides, the very words of the prophet express his meaning. First, his words say this, The name of the Lord will be great. This is accomplished by the preaching of the gospel. Through this preaching, Christ's name is made known, and the Father's mercy promised in Christ is reconciled, recognized. The preaching of the gospel produces faith in those who receive the gospel. They call upon God, give thanks to God, bear troubles for their confession, and produce good works for His glory. So the name of the Lord becomes great among the Gentiles. Therefore, incense and a pure offering means not a ceremony by the outward act, but all those sacrifices through which the name of the Lord becomes great. Faith, invocation, the preaching of the gospel, confession, and so on. 
If anyone would have this term include the ceremony of the Mass, we readily concede it, provided he neither understands the ceremony alone, nor teaches that the ceremony benefits by the outward act. We include the preaching of the Word among the sacrifices of praise, that is, among the praises of God. So the reception itself of the Lord's Supper can be praise or thanksgiving. But it does not justify by the outward act, neither is it to be applied to others to merit the forgiveness of sins for them. Later we will explain how even a ceremony is a sacrifice. Malachi speaks about all the services of the New Testament and not only about the Lord's Supper. Likewise, since he does not favor the Pharisaic opinion of the outward act, he is not against us but rather helps us. He requires services of the heart through which the name of the Lord becomes truly great. That is the point of New Testament worship, isn't it? To make the name of the Lord great, to praise him, to honor him. Not be about us, but be about him and his work. And Malachi is not done, neither is Melanchthon in regarding Malachi. Another passage is also cited from Malachi. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness, chapter 3, verse 3. This passage clearly requires the sacrifices of the righteous and so does not favor the opinion about the outward act. But the sacrifices of the sons of Levi, that is, of those teaching in the New Testament, are the preaching of the gospel and the good fruit of preaching. About this, Paul says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Romans 15, 16. He means that the Gentiles may be offerings acceptable to God through faith. In the law, the slaying of victims illustrated both Christ's death and the preaching of the gospel, by which his old flesh should be put to death and new and eternal life be begun in us. But everywhere the adversaries wrongly apply the name sacrifice to the ceremony alone. They leave out the preaching of the gospel, faith, prayer, and similar things, although the ceremony has been established because of these. The New Testament should have sacrifices of the heart, not ceremonies for sin that are to be performed like the Levitical priesthood. Here again, the difference between sacrifice in the law and the gospel. In the law is trying to give us righteousness. In the gospel, it is because we have already been reconciled. We have already been declared righteous. That even the Levitical sacrifices show that a death has occurred and that new life has been begun in us. Not because we've done the sacrifice, but because we believe the promise. All right, we conclude with paragraphs 35 through 38. They also cite the daily sacrifice. Just as there was a daily sacrifice in the law, so the Mass should be a daily sacrifice in the New Testament. The adversaries have made out well if we allow ourselves to be overcome by allegories. Clearly, allegories do not produce firm proofs. We readily allow the Mass to be understood as a daily sacrifice, as long as it includes the entire Mass, the ceremony with the preaching of the gospel, faith, invocation, and thanksgiving. Joined together, these are a daily sacrifice of the New Testament because of the ceremony of the Mass or the Lord's Supper was set up because of these things. The Mass is not to be separated from them. So Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11.26 But it cannot be shown from this Levitical type that a ceremony justifying by the outward act is necessary or should be applied on behalf of others, that it may merit the forgiveness of sins for them. The type represents appropriately not only the ceremony, but also the preaching of the gospel. In Numbers 28, 4-8, three parts of that daily sacrifice were represented. The burning of the lamb, the drink offering, and the offering of wheat flour. 
The law had pictures or shadows of future things, Colossians 2.17. So Christ and the entire worship of the New Testament are shown in this picture. The burning of the lamb illustrates Christ's death. The drink offering illustrates that everywhere in the entire world, by the preaching of the gospel, believers are sprinkled with the blood of that lamb that is sanctified. Peter says, In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, 1 Peter 1.2. The offering of wheat flour means faith, prayer, and thanksgiving in hearts. Therefore, in the Old Testament, the shadow is discerned. In the New, the thing illustrated should be sought, and not another type, as sufficient for a sacrifice. Although a ceremony is a memorial of Christ's death, it alone is not the daily sacrifice. The memory itself is the daily sacrifice, that is, preaching and faith. Faith truly believes that by Christ's death, God has been reconciled. A drink offering is required, that is, the effect of preaching, in order that being sprinkled by the gospel with the blood of Christ, we may be sanctified as those put to death and made alive. Offerings also are required, that is, thanksgiving, confessions, and troubles. Here we have bringing out the daily idea of the Mass, and that as the Levitical priesthood had a daily sacrifice of the burnt offerings, so also the Mass should be given daily, which is why in Roman Catholic parishes we do have the Mass being celebrated daily. But it is not just the going through of the motions. It is not like in the big cathedrals in the Middle Ages, nooks being carved out for monks to be praying the Mass just continually and repeatedly for the benefit of others. It is faith in the reception of the gifts. That is what makes the great sacrifice. That is what makes it worthy to be a remembrance of Christ's death, but also a firm deliverance of the promises of the gospel. All right, that's it for this week. Next week, we pick up with paragraph 39, talking about the true daily sacrifice as we continue to go on this discussion of what is a sacrifice, especially in regards to the Mass. Until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with this week, with me this week, and pray that it has helped to strengthen you to wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.